1: Support for Mississippi Public Broadcasting comes from Grammy
2: Museum, Mississippi. Presenting Ampton Wired on MPB-TV. More details
3: on the live performances and exclusive interviews featured on Ampton Wired at mpbonline.org. Good morning. It's
4: 8.30. I'm Karen Brown. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, a new law calls for increased accountability for law enforcement property seizures. Hear how it could be the first step in a movement for change. Then, the state's auditor's investigation results are in how some school districts are struggling to keep students in line while surfing online. Plus, new state efforts to expand access to autism treatment for children and adults. And in our book club, a by a Mississippi lawyer and one of the few women to serve as attorney for the University of Mississippi, Mary Ann Connell. That's all coming up. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Advocates say a new Mississippi law will add transparency to law enforcement property seizures. Beginning July 1st, officers have to obtain a warrant to seize property and list it in an online database. Dr. Jameson Taylor is with the Mississippi Center for Public Policy. He tells MPB's Desiree Frazier the transparency is much needed and he hopes to see more changes in the future.
1: Asset forfeiture is a process by which police are able to literally take people's property and keep it without even charging that person with a crime. And we are thrilled about the transparency that this new bill is going to bring, but it's merely a first step. We need to reform the process altogether.
0: What do you like about this bill?
1: Well, the reporting in particular, what the bill requires is that there will be set up a database that gives details about forfeitures and again a forfeiture occurs when um, you know you come in contact with police you may not be charged with a crime but they take your property And so mississippi has not had any transparency regarding those seizures at all what is going to happen now for the first time is that we will have a database that the public can use can search and get some details on these forfeitures And it's going to bring some accountability regarding the forfeitures that are occurring. I mean, this is a huge problem. We saw uh, just in 2015 alone um, millions of dollars of forfeitures.
0: And so currently uh, people can still have their items forfeited without conviction or even if they're not charged.
1: That's right. We have not changed that process. We have put in some, some safeguards. For instance, a warrant will now be required uh, for uh, property that's taken in a number of cases. But we still are going to have the problem that people's property can be taken by police, even if they are not charged with the crime, much less convicted of a crime.
0: Have you heard how difficult it is for those that aren't charged to get their property back, or is it difficult?
1: Well, we we do have a process for folks to get their property back, um, it's just that a lot of times uh, the the amount of time and cost it's going to take you to get your property back, it's, it may not be worth that property. For instance, you think about a person uh, who loses their car. Maybe the car is worth $2,000. And so then they're put into a position where they have to hire an attorney, and he's saying, well, it's going to probably cost you about $2,000 to get your property back. And so you do the math and think, well, I guess I'm not going to get my car back. But a lot of times uh, asset forfeiture also targets people that are low income, and they can't afford to go through that process, and they can't also be, afford to be without a car or to be without other property because, you know, that's, that's how they get to work. Uh, that's uh, maybe, let's say we're talking about the lawnmowers and the weed eaters that have been taken through forfeiture. That may be property that folks use to earn a living.
0: So if my items are forfeited and I'm not convicted or charged, I just can't go to the police department and say, I'd like my items back, please?
1: No, it's not that simple. Um, you may not always have to get an attorney, but uh, as someone who's studied this uh, this abuse for a number of years, I would advise you do get an attorney if you want to get your property back.
0: If law enforcement doesn't comply, what happens?
1: Uh, well, the under the bill, they're supposed to lose uh, federal and state funding if they don't comply.
0: Okay. Well, Jamison Taylor, we thank you very much for your time and for enlightening us on this new law.
1: Thanks for having me on today.
4: Nick Calico is the president of the Mississippi Law Enforcement Officers Association. He tells MPB's Desiree Fraser the process had already been in place and will require more paperwork.
3: There are state guidelines as to what you can spend forfeiture money on, and that's already been defined by law. Most agencies use it for equipment, including vehicles, and that's what uh, the majority of forfeiture seizures are used for. The requirements that this law is putting into effect has always been into effect, maybe just not to the extent that it is now, but any item that was forfeited... Uh, previously, had to go through a court system. So anybody that wanted to find out information about a forfeiture, it was recorded through the circuit clerk's office in uh, the county in which it was uh, forfeited.
0: Do you think there is uh, room for abuse in this system?
3: Anything that was seized from an individual was recorded through the court system. But I believe that they have Put the burden on the district attorney's office to report that information to the Bureau of Narcotics.
0: Is this reasonable to you?
3: It's a process that was already being done because it was already going through our district attorney's offices. In in our county, specifically, I know uh, that, that you've got to obtain a seizure warrant for everything except for a search warrant. And then you do have to get an actual seizure warrant in addition to the search warrant if it wasn't listed on that.
0: Forfeitures happen without due process, conviction, or charges against the owners for the crime. And some owners didn't come forward. Has this been an issue uh, for departments?
3: Uh, Well, uh, not to my knowledge. Anytime uh, anything is seized, that person is given a forfeiture notice and given guidelines as to what they are required to do and uh, they have a time frame in which they have to respond to it. I can only speak for the agency that uh, I'm employed with.
0: Do you think that this will have an impact on your job?
3: It's just going to add more paperwork. The Chiefs Association and the Sheriff's Association uh, both opposed it and the District Attorney's Association, I believe, also opposed it.
4: Nick Calico, president of the Mississippi Law Enforcement Officers Association with our Desiree Frazier. Now, the law doesn't require law enforcement to report how the seized assets are used. Coming up, some Mississippi students are accessing inappropriate material on their school computers. Find out how. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. This is Mississippi Edition. I'm Karen Brown. Mississippi public school districts need to review student Internet access procedures. The findings of an investigation by the Office of the State Auditor reveal some students are accessing obscene material and searching for guidance on school-issued computers. Stacey Pickering spoke with MPB's Mark Rigsby. He says some school districts now need to improve efforts to block and filter materials that is obscene or harmful to minors
5: there's starting to be a one-to-one initiative nationwide where you're providing one laptop or tablet, you know, IT device to each student in the district. We've got about a dozen uh, to 20 school districts in Mississippi right now that are moving into that initiative, embracing that. You take a look at the headlines, you start realizing that cyberbullying, sexploitation, all of these issues are rampant in all aspects of society, but specifically in our adolescents or students population. And when we have taxpayer-funded laptops and tablets being given to these students, what are we enabling to take place? Do we have the firewalls, the filters in place to protect them when they're home? Parents have an assumption the school district is providing that level of security, but is it really there? The federal government's concerned about they actually passed a law called the Child Internet Protection Act, CIPA. And that was what we were testing, going in, doing a pilot project that had not been done uh, in Mississippi, much less in other states around the country, where we're pulling these laptops, doing a data dump, so we can go in and data mine and find out what Internet sites have they been to, what searches are being conducted, what time of the day are we seeing these things done. How well are the filters working on these computers? The good news in Mississippi is that 80 percent of the actual items that we tested Turned out to be clean with no problems. It was at 20% of the computers that had very explicit material pornography, um, some sexploitation stuff. We actually had an eighth grader who was searching for sexually transmitted diseases and how to cure the warts that she had, you know, and turning to the internet for health care issues. So you raise issues of suicide, kids aren't looking and searching. How do I commit suicide to make it look like an accident? And then as we saw in Mississippi a couple of years ago, we had a high school student who self-radicalized with ISIS and al-Qaeda. You know, she converted her boyfriend to a radicalized uh, faith in, in, in Islam, and they tried to go join ISIS down there, both in federal prison. How are we monitoring this systematically and regularly? What are the best practices? That's why we did this audit, looking into our school districts that are embracing one to one technology with the students and helping them to evaluate how good
6: a job they're doing. Let's talk about the sample size. How many school districts were involved in the audit and how many devices were tested? Well, you're going to know
5: over 150 items were tested. It's a very small sample that we actually embraced uh, as we go into these districts. It was not 100% because this was a sample. It was a pilot project to see, is there a problem? Should should we invest more time, more energy, more efforts? These kind of audits are helpful. They help us see a more complete picture of what we're dealing with as a state, as local governments, at the school district. And so we're getting best practices out to these school districts that are affected, uh, good filters that work good districts that had good controls in place so that they can be replicated across the state.
6: How concerning are these results, not only to you, but to all schools and parents as well?
5: You know, as a parent, it's very concerning to me to realize we have some school districts who had good controls as long as that tablet or that laptop was at the school district. But once it left and got on another network, it was open to anything and everything. We need to make a, do a better job outreach.ing Make sure parents know what their expectation is with these devices. If I know the filters are, they can't guarantee that at home, then you know what? As a parent, I probably wouldn't let my child use that laptop in their bedroom with the door closed. You know, I would really want to have them know where they are with that. That's a parental issue and a trust factor parents need to know so they can deal with these kind of issues.
6: So you're saying the kids are smart enough to get around the filters? Not
5: every filter, but sometimes they are. And there's some firewalls that are put in place that they are smart enough to figure out a way around. And uh, as we've discovered in other IT audits, uh, you'll have one child helping the, in the office or the central office, and they learn an administrative code or find it on the desk, or maybe they're using it to help uh, as work-study program. Well, guess what, now they have the code and they're quick to share that. Uh, and they t- help work that around. We had 86% of the schools that we went into at the middle school level had explicit and pornographic material on the student laptops, 83% at the high school level. So it's happening. It's very real. It's male and it's female. It's rich. It's poor. It's black. It's white. Now, the question that we do raise is, well, was it the student? But when they took it home, was it a parent? Was it a brother or a sister? Those are very good likelihoods. There's no way to really track that and see that. We need to help the school districts and the State Department of Education set up regular protocols. This doesn't need to be something we're testing once a year. It needs to be something we're monitoring on a systematic
6: level. Let's talk about solutions. You mentioned some of them. What do school districts need to do specifically to crack down on limiting the access that students have to inappropriate material?
5: Well, you know, first and foremost, every school district had really good controls long as they were at their property. That's where it stops. If you said, okay, you can't carry these laptops home, that fixes the problem, but it kind of defeats the purpose of them having one-to-one, being able to do their research, their writing, their homework. So now when it goes home, what filters do we have in place? We had some school districts, like Clinton, that had very good controls in place on some of their items. We had other districts that did not have controls, some that actually had it set and turned it off so students could watch streaming videos or whatever at night, after school day, after Is that the best solution? And that's one reason we want to identify best practices that can be repeated across the state to make sure we're doing the very best we can by the students and their families.
6: Are there any consequences for the school districts themselves for not having a tighter handle on this situation?
5: There are consequences at the federal level. There's federal law, the Child Internet Protection Act, that impacts our schools. We want to make sure we're complying with that. And what we found is we're not complying in every situation.
6: Stacy, thank you very much for being on the program today. We do appreciate your time.
5: Hey, thanks so much. It's a privilege working for the citizens of the state of Mississippi.
4: That's Auditor Stacey Pickering with our Mark Rigsby. Now the report is available to the public on the website osa.ms.gov. Coming up, here, how advocates for autism services are working to expand treatment across the state. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio.
3: Informative MPB news stories, the local shows you love, up-to-date severe weather info, and a state and worldwide reach telling the story of Mississippi. You're listening to MPB Think Radio. This is
4: Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. Advocates and lawmakers are expanding access to autism treatment across the state. Autism Speaks, an autism advocacy and research organization, the Mississippi Autism Board, and other autism organizations from across the state are teaming up with parents, analysts, and therapists to raise awareness about barriers to treatment. Over 10,000 children in Mississippi have autism. Secretary of State Delbert Hoseman tells MPB's Alexis Ware it's important for mississippi children to have access to applied behavioral analysis a therapy that improves social behavior
2: we're shining a bright light on autism it's autism month and autism spectrum is very broad we have somewhere depending on who you talk to between five and ten thousand children now that are autistic in mississippi one in 68 live births in mississippi are autistic now so it's quite an epidemic here and there's no cure, known cure for that. But the treatment of where we go in uh, under ABA, what's called ABA therapy and reach to these children at age three, four, five, and six and seven, early intervention makes a difference on whether they will live a productive life or maybe be nonverbal their whole life.
0: So what has been the legislative efforts to help with this issue?
2: Well, three years ago, we started on drafting a bill uh, to provide health care coverage and licensing. And these, now we have licensing process, an autism board that's housed at the Secretary of State's office. And those individuals, five individuals, one a community member and then doctors, make a decision on whether you're licensed or not. And they've issued 32 of them now in Mississippi. Those are the people qualified to treat our children. And that's why that's really important.
0: What is the accessibility to treatment across the state?
2: It's uh, poor. We have several schools here in the Jackson area, Summit, uh, New Summit, uh, Magnolia Speech School, that, that are helpful here. There's one in Tupelo, the North Mississippi Autism Group. Uh, Long Beach has one, University of Southern Mississippi has one, Dubard School, but there's very, very limited treatment out and around in rural Mississippi. So we're reaching out with our uh, webpage on providing moms and dads what... What treatment available, is available to them and the insurance coverage, those kinds of things.
0: What is your hope for Mississippi to be able to address the growing number of people with autism?
2: Well, we need to provide every child in Mississippi the reasonable opportunity to progress and live their lives and be a part of our communities and do all the things that you want any child to have the opportunity to do.
0: Mississippi Secretary of State Delbert Hoseman, thank you so much for speaking with me today.
2: Oh, thank you all for being here. It's really important.
4: ABA therapy is only available in four areas in Mississippi. Coming up, author Marianne Connell shares how a horrific family tragedy shaped the rest of her life. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio.
3: Informative MPB news stories, the local shows you love, up-to-date severe weather info, and a state and worldwide reach telling the story of Mississippi. You're listening to MPB Think Radio.
4: This is Mississippi edition. Mississippi author, attorney, and educator Mary Ann Connell is sharing her personal triumphs over gender barriers and tragedy in her memoir entitled An Unforeseen Life. Though she suffered a horrific family loss in her childhood, she writes about how it set the tone for her future. She tells us about her defining moment.
7: It was absolutely uh, the most defining moment of my life because I was completely responsible, and I knew I was. I did what I knew better than to do. I went inside, got matches, lit the fire, and then the rest is all set forth in the book. And I have spent the rest of my life, and I'm almost 80 years old, I spent the rest of my life trying to, I think, basically compensate, overachieve, make up for the loss. My father came home from the war, And I overheard him say to my mother, he was such a sweet person, but he said, Oh, I just don't, I can't imagine Marianne coming in and getting those matches and starting that fire. She knew better than that. Well, he would never have said that if he had thought I heard it, but I did. And so that just simply confirmed in my mind the guilt and responsibility that I had to bear for what I had done.
4: It was your little five-year-old brother who died and you saw him suffer and you had to live with that image uh, of him running around in flames, literally. Is that something you still think of? I mean, has that stayed with you all your life?
7: All my life. It's just as clear to me today as it was all those years ago.
4: Talking about your achievement, I love what your high school superintendent said, and it was being a girl is no excuse for not reaching for your goals.
7: Wasn't that wonderful? And to think he said that in 1954, but he encouraged me, and that's one of the reasons uh, again that I wrote this book. I hope that it will be an encouragement to young women who may be afraid that they can't reach for their goals because they can.
4: Well, of course, among your many accomplishments was to serve as the attorney for Ole Miss, for the University of Mississippi. Can you talk about some of the more well-known cases during your time there?
7: I can say, first of all, that that job is the greatest job in the world for a person who practices law and loves education. So I am so grateful that I had it all those years. It's varied. It's interesting. You're dealing with young people, you're dealing with faculty, you're dealing with Uh, litigation, and you're dealing with problem solving. Some of the things that I was involved with, I'd say, first of all, the gust of my mind is when the Chancellor Fortune, in the early 1980s, wanted to uh, renounce the Confederate flag as a symbol of the university. And he made this announcement. He said it has never been a symbol formally of this university, and it's never going to be. Well, that got people all up in the dither, and the Ku Klux Klan came to campus and asked him if they could have a demonstration. They wanted to walk around the campus and protest of what he was doing. They wanted to end their protest in front of the Lyceum, the main administration building, where they had a little band that was going to play Dixie, and they were going to hoist the Confederate flag. So he called me into his office. He said, I don't want to do this, but do I legally have to? Well, I knew the answer, but I said, give me a day to think about this. I called Professor George Conklin, who taught constitutional law, and I said, George, I need your help. I know the answer, but I want you to back me up. I want to be sure I'm correct. And he said, yes, you're absolutely correct. You cannot deny them permission. You let other groups come on the campus just because you don't like what the Klan stands for. You can't, on that basis alone, keep them out. So the next day I walked back to the office and met the Grand Wizard, and I said, Mr. Wizard, we're going to have to let you have your protest, but we're not going to let you have it where you want to have it. We're going to put you in an area where you'll be protected, where your speech can be heard, but you will not be as on public display as in front of the Lyceum building. And he got furious with me, and he said, well, we just won't protest here at all. We'll just go downtown and march around the square in Oxford. And I said, well, that's just
4: wonderful. (laughs) You,
7: You will enjoy the square. There are a lot of nice restaurants, so you just have a nice day.
4: Now, you are a multiple award winner in many different fields, or at least in many different aspects of your career. Is there one that stands out that means more to you than the others?
7: The NAACP. Freedom Award was very meaningful to me because I had tried very hard to uh, promote good race relations. The same thing would be said about the Chancellor's Award for my efforts to increase diversity on the campus and my work with the disabilities, uh, disability
4: compliance.
7: So that those were taken very, very meaningfully by me, and I appreciate them very much.
4: The memoir by Marianne Connell is called An Unforeseen Life. Ms. Connell, thank you so much for being with us.
7: Well, I appreciate your time, Karen.
4: Marian Connell will be at Off Square Books in Oxford next Tuesday, April 11th at 5 p.m. Stay tuned to MPB Think Radio for a full slate of Mississippi-based programs all morning long at 9 Creature Comforts, at 10 MPB's Teas and Pass, at 11 Southern Remedy, and join us again tomorrow morning at 8:30 for the next Mississippi edition.